name is Lucina Jones, and I am going to facilitate this training on safety and crisis prevention, intervention, and response. So I do want to say that this is not a training on restraint. It's um, not a training on seclusion, but it's more of a preventative, uh, more supportive stance on how to assess and manage crisis, and then also, if possible, how to prevent it, and then how to respond. Um, so I will break for questions every now and then, and then we will just kind of interact and process as we go. The training objectives, and it'll be split across two days. The first is to identify three specific practices to ensure safety in an office and field-based setting while engaging mental health consumers. Um, but also we'll go through situational awareness and, and identify how to apply it when conducting field work. But then also we'll identify practices to ensure safety when conducting street-based outreach, uh, define what a crisis is and, and go through examples and scenarios. And then we'll also identify self-regulation techniques, nonverbal and verbal de-escalation techniques to use during a crisis. Um, or even when we're near crisis, the consumer has escalated but is not quite in crisis. So we'll go through those things. The first slide goes to field safety versus office safety. Um, some of this information may be repetitive for you guys, but we like to go through it just to make sure um, that we don't make assumptions, okay? So field safety is definitely any work done outside of your um, assigned office. So even if you're at a satellite office or even if you're in the community, field-based work, um, those, areas are considered field, whereas your office um, for the purposes of this particular presentation is specific to your assigned office, your designated office. Um, there are policies and protocols along with expectations and guidelines specifically outlined through the Department of Mental Health uh, tied to how you are expected as uh, professionals to provide support. There's actually, it's a 170 page document labeled the Illness and Injury Prevention Plan that's really thorough. Um, it's through the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health and it really breaks down guidelines and policies around how to provide offsite mental health services. Uh, there are policies specific to conduct, when to wear your badge, how to store information, how to honor uh, HIPAA, privacy and security, but then also there's specific um, expectations tied to like transporting consumers and their families. So even though it's a, a lengthy document, if you ever have any questions about the expectations, you can always refer back to that. But then also directly operated agencies um, and contract agencies tend to have um, different in terms of wording and semantics, policies tied to like wearing your badge, uh, safety and response, team meetings, uh, meeting consumers in the field, but they're always going to be in alignment with the Department of Mental Health expectations. So we always start with this slide because we really like to encourage people, get to know the expectations of your agency in terms of how do you transport, how do you identify yourself, uh, follow up if there is an escalated situation 
who to contact or how to access medical care within the field. Um, there's always guidance on those uh, specific situations. So this is, again, why we start with this, especially now um, with a lot of things having um, exacerbated our already fragile community, um, there are going to be guidelines that are revamped or revitalized to support you as you do field work. Um, situational awareness, we will spend a good chunk of time on situational awareness um, because with all of the things that are going on, it's very easy to settle into apathy. It's very easy to settle into um, burnout and feeling overwhelmed and just going through the motions. And when we're experiencing those particular conditions, our awareness tends to kind of dull a little bit. So for example, you may park in an area that you're used to parking in and you haven't noticed a sign that says no parking now. Or maybe you've parked in someone's driveway because you're feeling a little bit more exhausted today and it just was a quicker route and then you get blocked in. Or even you misread a date and a time and you've missed a meeting or um, clients are contacting you, you're feeling a little overwhelmed and so you've turned off your phone and forgot to turn it back on. And so now you're in a situation that becomes a safety issue and you have to wait for your phone to turn on. You know, things like that do happen. Um, and so situational awareness is super important whenever we're working with consumers, whether it's through telehealth or if we are in the field or if we are in the office. Um, situational awareness has to do with being aware of what's going on around you as well as in you, what things trigger you in the moment. Uh, say, for example, you're walking into a new consumer, um, maybe it's an encampment, a new consumer's encampment, and you don't quite feel safe and you're not quite sure why, you've never felt threatened in this particular situation, you know, how do you respond to that intuition, you know? So situational awareness takes into consideration what's going on around you as well as in you and the response and that impact of that response on you and the environment that you are in. Um, are there any questions so far? Hi, Lucina. Yeah, there's a few questions here. Um, one of the questions is uh, asking, are, are you going to cover today any safety uh, regarding LPS holds? Or will the information be applicable to that? The information I believe will be applicable in the sense of identifying assessment versus managing a crisis. And we spend a good chunk of time on assessment because we wanna make sure that before you make that call and initiate an LPS hold, you have all of the information necessary that may either help you um, complete that hold or that is likely to steer you away from that hold um, and not escalate a situation or be left without a resource. Does that make sense? Um, so it's definitely applicable, but we will not go over the process of how to facilitate an LPS hold, no. But good question. Yeah, and, and it sounds like a lot of what you're going to talk about today is applicable to a variety of situations, including LPS holds. So that definitely makes sense. And um, will you be providing any information about uh, COVID-19 protocols? Is anything different in regards to safety 
um, now that we have a very new sort of, <laughs> it's not new anymore, but. <laughs> well, what I am going to provide is, you know, um, strategies for keeping yourself safe and healthy, keeping your um, clients safe and healthy, um, and then give people the opportunity to really process situations that have come up where they may have felt like, oh, I really want to wear my mask or Ooh, how do I get this client to wear their mask or how can I get this client to um, use hand sanitizer or how do I operate um, professionally when I'm trying to social distance. Um, and then we'll go over the tier right now in terms of who they are scheduling vaccinations for. Um, and then just the, the reminders, you know, mask up, wash your hands, keep your hands out of your face, away from your mouth and eyes. Um, so we'll go through stuff like that. It sounds good. And then the, the last question was about sharing the link to the policy. And I, I'm not sure what policy, but I'm happy to look that up for you. If, you can, if someone is able to just clarify what policy you're looking for, and I can do a little searching while uh, you continue your presentation. Well, while they're clarifying, so you can actually, um, the Department of Mental Health, you can either contact 211 or you can just do a simple Google search. And what you're looking for is the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health Illness and Injury Prevention Plan. Um, the most recent one, I believe, is August of 2013. But there's also specific policies like policy number 309.01 is the provision of offsite mental health services. And it goes into conduct, badge wearing, storage of information. And you can Google those policy numbers as well. Um, if you're interested in transportation of consumers specifically, you can look up the DMH policy 304.04, .04, transportation of consumers and their families. Um, but the illness and injury prevention plan will also have links embedded in there as well. So what's really great um, about this training is finding that fine line between assessment and management of crises. And this is one of my absolute favorite things to do. The reason is because we get to develop a language around what is a crisis. So for example, what is a crisis to a clinician may not be a crisis to a case manager, which may not be a crisis to uh, say the program manager or a peer support specialist. And so when we're talking about assessment, it's really about what general things can we see and identify that say, okay, we are on our way to a crisis. Management is when you've said, okay, we're in crisis, we're going to do this, we're going to put something in place, we're going to get the team together, um, we're going to move, okay? So when we move through the training, when we talk about assessment versus management, we're talking about asking questions, gathering information versus what is the plan moving forward. We've already made a decision. When we talk about assessment versus management in the field versus office safety, we have to look at the components that are missing in the field versus what's present in the office. In an office setting, you can um, manage a crisis a little bit more um, effectively and a little easier because of the people who may already be present. Whereas in the field, you have to really work to assess 
thoroughly because it may just be the provider and the consumer. You may not be within um, five to seven miles of your needed resource. And so assessing what is going on, how to get the needs met is going to be super integral to um, moving toward managing a crisis. Um, when we're talking about assessment of a crisis, we're asking what's going on. What is going on with this client? How are they feeling? Um, what do they look like? We're, we're assessing how close are they to causing harm or grave bodily injury to themselves or someone else. We're looking at um, are they going to lose access to either their freedom, um, a resource that's integral to their hierarchy of needs. You know, we're really continuing to ask questions. We're continuing to gather information. And management, again, we are doing something now. We are moving the token forward. The reason we really want to emphasize the difference between those two is because you want to be able to articulate what the next step is along the way. And if you have all the information that you need, it's just going to make the process a little easier. For example, with an LPS designation, um, the person can say, oh, okay, you know, I believe this person is in crisis and there's a hospitalization warranted. Well, in the process of the, okay, there's a need and here's the resource, you may observe different things that let you know how to support this person as they transition into a whole, and that's part of your assessment. So we really like to separate out those two things to make sure that people are communicating what step they're at and how they're moving things forward. Um, and we also like to make sure that when we're covering safety practices for outreach or building and establishing healthy and safe practices, we're doing that with the idea of, am I assessing or am I managing this crisis? Am I assessing, can I help, can someone else help, or who do we call, or how are we hospitalizing this person? Um, so here are some areas of safety, and we are going to um, go into those other um, assessment components. But when we're talking about safety in the field, these are the things we're also looking at. We're looking at vehicle safety. Um, does your car run? Is the engine light on? Um, can you lock all of your doors? Do your seat belts work? Um, we're also looking at where are you parking? Um, we're looking at, are you making sure that you are putting only what's necessary in your front seat and you can take it with you? Um, is your vehicle registered? Do you have insurance? Um, you know, things that are specifically tied to keeping you and others safe who are in your vehicle or around your vehicle or when you have to get in your vehicle. Physical safety, what are you wearing? What do you look like? What kind of clothing and attire do you have on? If you're working in the field and you're in an encampment, are you wearing comfortable shoes? Um, how are you protecting your belongings? Um, making sure that you're able to be aware of the items that are personal so you don't leave them behind. Are there any items on you that can be grabbed, pulled, caught, snatched, or otherwise used as a weapon? You know, when we're talking about physical safety, it is the actual um, contents that are on a person, but then also how is that person feeling, you know. We're also talking about um, protecting yourself in the time of COVID. So, for example, 
other people have voice concerns during this training that it's really hard to get some consumers to wear a mask. You know, how do you um, encourage someone to honor safety regulations that maybe they don't believe in? You know, so what we encourage is you honor them. So for example, hey, you know, hey, Ron, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna wear my mask and I'm gonna social distance. Um, because I want to keep you safe, and I also want to keep myself safe. So I'm just going to ask that you keep your distance. I understand you don't want to wear a mask, um, but is there something I can do to help you feel better about wearing it? You know, really calling attention to your needs as well as the needs of the consumer. That's a physical safety issue. It's also a health and wellness issue, a biohazard issue. So when we're looking at specific um, you know, safety issues in the field, we're taking all of that into consideration. We're also taking into consideration if that person becomes agitated um, because you're asking or you're advocating for your own health and wellness, how do you move forward? Also, we're talking about communication when you're in the field. Does your team know where you are? Um, does anyone have any um, experiences that they would like to share or process related to trying to keep themselves safe in the field, um, and maybe a consumer wouldn't agree to honor your safety request, um, and you just kind of want to work through that experience so that we can figure out strategies for how to address it if it comes up again. So we, um, I will give an example and then we'll move along. So one of the things that came up recently was, um, you know, someone who had COPD was not comfortable meeting with their clinician um, in the field because she kept the clinician required the individual to wear a mask. And so what the um, two of them came to an agreement of was, I will sit farther away from you, maybe eight feet. We will find somewhere comfortable to meet. We will try and make sure that we have enough privacy um, and the clinician will wear her mask and even a face shield. Um, and then they will utilize hand sanitizer before and after. The clinician will also bring extra ink pens for that client to utilize. Um, and she would label them so that, okay, well, now that we've used this pen, this is the one that you're gonna use for today until the end of our meeting and I'll use mine. Um, and she empathized with the client and encouraged the client to um, verbalize any concerns, but also really drew that boundary of, well, I have to keep myself safe so I can keep coming to see you. You know, that, that was what we encouraged and it sounded like it worked out really well. Um, so as far as, you know, COVID practices, right now, mask up, the social distancing, um, also hand sanitizer, deep breathing exercises are really, really good if you're alone, just to kind of make sure that you are keeping yourself calm in situations that can trigger worry around, um, you know, catching COVID. But then also they're currently vaccinating healthcare workers. One of the great things is your organization can advocate to be a part of the healthcare worker vaccination group. Um, I know of several group homes that advocated and signed up to have their staff members um, 
their residential youth care workers, as well as their therapists and their administrative staff, as well as the doctors who work there, um, they were able to be invited to come and get vaccinated. So currently, they are vaccinating healthcare workers, long-term care facility residents, and persons 65 and over. And you can sign up on the Department of Public Health website if you are in one of those groups. I encourage you to really check in with your program managers and supervisors regarding vaccines if that's something of interest to you. Um, but in terms of other ways to kind of manage what we're experiencing with COVID, the hand washing, the keeping your hands out of your face, carrying hand sanitizer, um, but doing a lot of hand washing. So hand sanitizer is not effective for all day use if you're not washing your hands after a couple of uses. Um, also making sure that you stay hydrated, making sure that you wear your mask and that you're comfortable um, and then also just keeping an eye on your items and where you're placing them. You know, uh, if you are able to wipe down your contents at the end of each session, then that would be great. If you're able to kind of carry a little sanitizer with you um, while you're meeting with clients and encouraging them to use it as well, that's really, really great. Um, and then also making sure that you are able to kind of leave your items in a designated area, like say, for example, in your truck when you get home. And then that way, when you enter your physical space, you know that you've wiped down everything, but then also this space has not necessarily been tainted, if that makes sense. Um, are there any questions or any other ideas? Yeah, so we actually got a few different ideas and then a question. So I was going to go through the ideas first and then hit the question yeah, at the end. Um, but uh, someone mentioned always have a field itinerary with addresses so that supervisors or coworkers know where you are. Also, don't carry a purse or backpack. Try to keep your belongings minimal, which also includes jewelry. Um, someone recommended just be cautious of bystanders. Um, and there was a, a comment here where they used to use uh, or carry field panic buttons, but now I guess the county no longer does uh, provides those. That's a really interesting idea though. I've never, I haven't heard of that. And then the question is, uh, how about situations when others are in the house and you're not sure who they are and, and what their intentions are? So that is a really wonderful question. And, um, you know, the Department of Mental Health has had staff who've been in those situations and it did not end very well. So that's a beautiful question. I think in this instance, what I would do is I would encourage you when you walk into the home and you announce yourself, oh, okay, hi, so-and-so, it's me. Is anyone else here? Okay, I just want to make sure we have, you know, privacy. I really want to respect your confidentiality. Would you mind if we sat outside? Um, or even if you can go with a partner, go with the partner if you're unable to, I strongly encourage to sit outside, especially because you don't know what practices the individuals in that home engage in when it comes to hand washing, um, sanitizing, uh, masking up, right? And so it's a really wonderful opportunity to say, well, I really want to keep both of us safe. Do you mind sitting outside? Um, but also, that's a component of situational awareness when it becomes very clear to you internally, I am not 
in my own environment and I'm not sure what their intentions are of the individuals in this home. You know, you have to respond to that coming up in you. Um, there's a really great book called The Gift of Fear, and it really hones in on that intuition and that internal conversation that takes place when we are feeling unsafe and there's a specific reason for it. And so I strongly encourage transition the meeting outside if possible to a place where you can have as much access to privacy and confidentiality. Um, I don't know how comfortable you guys feel if there's not a specific place. Well, let's walk a little bit you know, not too far. Um, but, you know, if something in you is saying, uh, I don't want to be in this situation by myself, you can take a walk, you can transition the meeting outside. Um, or you could even say something like, let me call my uh, supervisor and let her know I made it to your home safely. You know, things that honor what you're feeling, but then also create a sense of, um, awareness with the client that they're, they're, this work still needs to get done. What are your thoughts on that? Does anyone have thoughts on the response I gave? Okay. While we wait to see if there's anybody um, uh, responding to that, uh, there was another suggestion and uh, it's to come up with, have a secret word that you could use if you need to leave this scene immediately. And then there's um, some feedback about, yeah, you have to listen to your gut and uh, this individual once didn't and found herself in a pretty uncomfortable situation. So yeah, great points. Thank you. Your gut is one of the most beautiful signs during um, situational awareness. The reason is because you are, we are created with a sense of um, self-preservation. Self-preservation is something that um, will keep us safe every time. So some people say, well, what's the difference between um, fear and intuition? I like to encourage people, and please give me your feedback. Um, I like to encourage people to remember that fear says, I don't know what to do, whereas intuition says, we need to do this. Does that make sense? So for example, intuition says, we need to leave. Fear says, oh my God, I'm so scared, you know, um, and fear tends to be more general, whereas intuition may give you um, a specific directive. That's at least how I encourage like my staff um, and my clients. If anyone has any other suggestions about differentiating between um, anxiety or fear and intuition, then that would be great. Other suggestions as well related to awareness and safety, know your exits. Know your exits, definitely communicate about your whereabouts, arrive on time and leave on time so that the people who know your field plan can say, oh, so-and-so's a little late. I hope they're okay. Um, be aware of high-risk areas, especially fire areas. Um, store personal items in locked boxes in your trunk when you are in the field. Minimize excess accessories. If you only need your badge, a clipboard, and your cell phone and your keys, that's wonderful. Um, know as much about your client as possible prior to transitioning to the field. I think that that is huge. I think that is one of the most important things you can do to prevent 
um, being caught in a situation that you did not expect is know where you're going and know who you're going to see. Park in well-lit areas. If possible, don't go to new areas alone. Um, see who in your office is familiar with the area that you're going to. And then definitely lock your car. And then areas in the safety components in the field also include illnesses and airborne diseases. So right now, again, COVID. I strongly, strongly encourage you all to take care of yourselves. That is something that should be done regularly. So, you know, making sure you're drinking water, getting enough rest so that you put yourself in the best position to fight any airborne illness or disease that you unfortunately come in contact with. Um, but this is on here specifically to remind you, mask up, you know, wear gloves if possible. Uh, making sure that you are aware of where you're going. Is it well lit? Is it ventilated? Um, is it um, somewhere where there's a lot of free flowing air that's fresh? Or is it somewhere where maybe it's odorous and you'll have like a little bit of a hard time kind of breathing? Make sure that you, you're familiar with what you're going into. Also, accessing medical care in the field. In the event of an emergency, you have to know where you are so that if you have to call for medical support, you can guide them to you. Or if you need your own medical support, you can guide them to you. Reporting incidents while you're in the field. One of the things that comes up with this slide is what happens if you have to call the police and you're in a field area where maybe the police are not very welcome. How do you navigate those situations? You know, um, I always encourage people, make sure you can be seen, uh, make sure that you let people know that you are um, the individual calling them. So when you are speaking to ditch dispatch, let them know what you're wearing, let them know that you'll have a badge um, showing who you're with, and also let them know that um, you are a provider of mental health services. Questions on that? There are a, um, a few uh, really great comments. Um, Hugh mentions that he likes to meet outside, although this is a really good, he also recognizes that sometimes it's actually safer to be indoors depending on what neighborhood um, you might be in. Um, staying near the door can be really helpful if you are inside. Um, try and, and stay partnered up, I, so important when it's possible, of course. And um, the last one is uh, a fear and intuition can or will occur at the same time. So allow intuition to lead you out of a potential dangerous or uncomfortable situation. Absolutely. I was saying that that is a beautiful way to describe intuition is intuition will lead you out of a situation um, when you're differentiating between fear and intuition. I think those are beautiful suggestions. Um, one of the things that I also encourage is be aware of when your back is against a wall. If you find yourself in a situation where you are suddenly aware that your back is against the wall, I encourage you to transition out of that situation. The reason is because you're so limited when you can only move left to right. Um, that can put you in a position to where you're not able to social distance, where you're not able to leave if you need to, but then also to kind of be cornered. So definitely be aware of your 
physical stance, where you are, your proximity to exits, your proximity to the nearest door. Um, if you're in a situation with a client who has escalated, are there things in the room that can be thrown? You know, you always want to be aware of your physical proximity, um, what's around you, how close you are to an exit, is your back against the wall? Those things are super important. Um, also, when you're in the field, another area of safety to be mindful about is you're meeting clients who may use substances. So if you're meeting clients in the field who may use substances, it is super important from the outset to define how that's going to go. For example, um, you know, Martin, when we meet in the field, I understand you use marijuana, but I'm not able to work with you when you're intoxicated. Or, hey, the last time I came, you seemed like maybe you had been drinking and I want to make sure that everything is um, okay and see how you feel about me ending our sessions if you're intoxicated and I come into the field. You know, that is something that I strongly encourage your team to have guidance and direction around so that it's consistent, um, but then also that you identify the um, importance of honoring or sticking to whatever guidance um, your team, your director, your manager comes up with. Um, if you choose to continue to work with clients who are currently intoxicated while you're meeting with them, you have to be aware of when it's time to leave. You have to recognize of when you have overstayed um, your safety zone and the reason I, I label it as a safety zone is because in, in my experience, working with people who use substances, not just when we're in the field, not just when we are meeting them in encampments, not when we're meeting them, not just when we meet them in churches or hospitals, when we meet them to do uh, discharges, there seems to be a window where um, the individual loses complete control of their ability to manage their emotions when they are intoxicated. That safety zone is when you're going to get them at their most reasonable while intoxicated, if that makes sense. Um, the reason it's super important to be aware of that safety zone is because, A, you want to make sure that you're honoring that person's humanity and treating them how you would want to be treated if you we're in that particular situation. But then also you wanna make sure and minimize potential safety issues that will arise um, if the individual has um, a dual diagnosis. Um, so just really recognizing when to leave, recognizing when that window of safety is decreasing. Um, but then first and foremost, what is the policy or stance or guidance that your manager, your director um, is giving you when it comes to meeting people who are actively intoxicated. Um, so not they use generally, but are actively like they are using or used before you arrived. Questions about that or um, alternative thoughts or ideas? Yeah, there's a couple questions here or a, a question and a comment. Um, uh, would you not notify authorities regardless of whether or not they are well received? And then the comment of protect and to serve. 
And then the, the comment is uh, avoid becoming personally involved to the point where you become overly comfortable. And, and it's such a great point because I feel like then it's easy to let your guard down. Um, but uh, Gilda follows up with boundaries are very important to maintain. Well, regarding um, contacting authorities, when what are we talking about specifically? Well, I, I'm gonna just kind of give what I think their question is. Is that okay? Um, I think in terms of contacting the authorities, if there is a situation and someone's physical person or your physical person is in danger, you always contact authorities. You always contact authorities. Someone using substances may not constitute an emergency. So uh, it definitely depends on your relationship with that consumer. It depends on the guidance that you've received from your manager, your safety officer, your team standard. But then if there is no danger in terms of contacting the authorities, I, I don't know how helpful that would be. Um, and I think that it's actually counterintuitive to working with a client who has a dual diagnosis or has a history of substance use. Um, but I definitely think the point about boundaries and becoming overly involved is huge. When you find yourself crossing boundary after boundary, it may be beneficial to seek supervision um, and consultation around how to transition either back to a healthy professional place, or you may seek your own supervision and eventually transition the case to someone else. But definitely over-involvement can lead to liability and unsafe situations. Um, just a, a quick comment. Uh, says there is a situation where, <clears throat> excuse me, her colleague and herself had to contact the authorities because of the situation. It just got out of hand um, with the client. Oh, definitely. Whenever we say that a situation has gotten out of a, out of hand, if we can label a situation like that, absolutely. We always contact people who are going to help keep us and the consumer safe. So definitely, um, but if we're talking about just because the client is using substances, that may not be helpful. Um, but if it is a crisis situation and we are going into that after the slide, then absolutely, um, you have to keep yourself and the consumer safe. Okay, so now we're talking about defining crisis. So the question earlier related to um, LPS hold, or even earlier um, situations when we're talking about knowing when to leave or uh, how to protect yourself, those situations may involve elements of a crisis. So what are elements of a crisis? And you guys are totally free to give your feedback. We can converse about this, but the elements of a crisis situation are, is hospitalization a possibility? Is this person's behavior going to end in them being hospitalized. We probably have a crisis if it is. Are there safety concerns such as um, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation that is manifesting itself in a plan and behavior and now there's a safety issue 
either to someone else or that client, we're probably in a crisis situation. Um, loss of access to pertinent resources, that's housing. So maybe housing or medical care. So we can have a potential crisis situation that does not end in someone being hospitalized, but the individual is going to lose housing. And the loss of housing is going to end in this individual accessing hospitalization. That might be a situation that can arise to crisis level. Loss of freedom, again, hospitalization or incarceration. So when we're looking at elements of a crisis situation, we have to ask ourselves, is this going to end in hospitalization, someone being harmed, the loss of a pertinent resource or the loss of this individual's freedom in one way or another? If so, we probably need to begin managing this situation. Are there other elements that are not present or other situations that may rise to the label of being a crisis situation that are not listed? So risk assessment versus risk management. So this is the, the, the steps that we take when we say, okay, we're in assessment, now we need to manage it, now we need to get the team players together, now there's a protocol that we're implementing and then follow up. So these are the steps that our organization looks at and says, okay, we're assessing, we're assessing, we're assessing. All right, it looks like there's gonna be a loss of freedom, a hospitalization, or there's a safety issue. Now we need to manage this situation. Management looks like putting a plan in place. Someone call 911. Someone um, move all the sharps out of the room. Someone make sure that that client is not alone with other clients. Someone move the rest of the clients out of the area. Someone make sure that they are leading the police to our suite. Whatever it is, we are managing. We have a plan. We have behavior. We have action. Then the team players involved, who is going to be the lead in this situation? All right, you know, Officer Savage, you're going to go ahead and you're going to team up with Ms. Jones and you guys are going to make sure that the client remains in this area and remains supported. Um, you know, Lori, you go and you call 911. Um, you know, Ezekiel, you go and you make sure that the rest of the clients are removed from this waiting area. Uh, you know, Benjamin, you go ahead and you see if there are any sharks around that if the client ends up in this area, they are able to throw, remove it all. Then there's a protocol. Okay, so we've called 911, so chances are we are going to end in this client's loss of freedom. Who is going to take the lead um, in being the communication point? You know, what happens when the police get here? What is the policy? Our hands are off. The police are there. They are going to handle the situation. We're going to observe and provide information that they need. The follow-up, that's going to be the debriefing with the team. That's going to be the documentation, the uh, special incident report. That's also going to be what went wrong. How do we reduce the reoccurrence of this? How do we say, okay, what was our communication like that kind of triggered the situation or mismanaged the situation? Is there any room for improvement? The follow-up is going to be the improvement opportunity for the team, but then there's going to be someone who needs to debrief with that client. Who's going to go see that client when they're hospitalized to say, hey, we're waiting on you when you feel better. 
So that's what the um, assessment management response and follow-up would look like. Are there any questions about that? Alrighty. When we're identifying risk in a situation, we have to look at behaviors. When we're looking at behaviors, we are looking at the mental status, so to speak. So in terms of the mental status, what did they look like? Um, what are they saying or doing? What are you observing? We're also looking at what are they saying they need? We're also looking like, is this a potential medication issue and we need to call 911 for hospital support? So when we're talking about behaviors, this is the first part of assessment that will give you an idea of, are we managing or are we, um, are we moving toward management? I'm sorry, excuse me, are we moving toward management or is there a way for us to intervene and support this client? When we look at behaviors, we're looking at the emotional signs, crying, yelling, mutism, or arguing, inappropriate laughter, fear, or even confusion. When we talk about other signs such as behavioral signs, is there rocking and swaying? Is there rapid breathing? Are they shaking their extremities? Is there pressured speech? Is there tension in the body? Are they very, very quiet or are they extremely loud? Is there clenched fist? Is there poor eye contact? Are they pacing? Are there skittish behaviors? But then we're also looking at cognitive signs. Are they defensive in their statements? Are they overgeneralizing? Is there black and white thinking? Is there blaming? Is there obsessions or preoccupations? Are they refusing to listen or do they believe you're refusing to listen? So those are just behaviors that we may see when we're trying to engage someone. But then also that coupled with self-reports. Does this individual communicate what they need? If they're saying something like, I need to be hospitalized, I don't think I can keep myself safe, I'm scared of myself, I don't know what to do, I need help. You know, what is this individual reporting? You know, we have to believe in client self-determination that they know what they need. So if you're observing, say for example, yelling and rocking and swaying, engaging in conversations um, with entities that only they can observe or hear, um, as well as maybe now they're pacing and they seem kind of agitated, um, or the individual is also yelling and saying, no one ever listens to me, or they, they're unable to take in information, and they begin to self-report, I need help, we need to move. You know, if there is a combination of behaviors and their own self-report saying, we are unsafe, or I am unsafe, or I'm going to harm you, we need to move through into management. Whenever we are looking at imminent safety issues, we need to move into management. But then also your own observations. So not just the signs, um, emotional signs, behavioral signs, cognitive signs, and self-report, but then also what did they look like when they came in? Were they disheveled? Um, how did they interact with the people around them? Uh, how did they respond to you? Is there a different presentation that you've never seen before? You know, what are you observing? What is your situational awareness beginning to tell you, oh, this individual rushed through the door and got very quiet and sat there for 15 minutes? 
and there's no one else in the building, you know, I'm, I'm feeling like this may transition into something, you know, your judgment is going to really inform your observations. So all of that is working together at the same time. And then medication, is this response to new medication? Is this a side effect of medication? Is this individual med compliant? If you don't know these things because you're not the primary provider, um, it, it would benefit you to get in touch with someone who knows the individual right away. Any questions so far? Yeah, we have a few uh, a few questions, and yeah. I'm going to read a comment first, and then go to a question. So, uh, uh, it, Jennifer says, in our case, I think what went wrong was not to take the client to his appointment because he was already under the influence since uh, since the beginning when we uh, met with him. However, it was her first time meeting with the client. The client was already upset, trying to start an altercation with another client since our work clinic. Uh, since they were inside the work clinic. So already a red flag there. And then a, a question, uh, a separate question came up. Um, what if you're not familiar with the client? How do you know if the behavior is their baseline? Great questions. Um, with regard to what if you're not familiar with the client? What if you're not familiar with their baseline behavior? What I would encourage you to do is assess, ask questions. This is a new client. The first thing you may wanna do is, hello, uh, we'll pick a new name. Hi, Julie, you know, how are you feeling today? I, I don't really know you, but is everything okay? Is there anything you need? What's going on? There are phrases that I stay away from and I encourage my staff to stay away from, such as, what's your problem? What's wrong with you? Um, you know, saying you need to calm down, you know, asking questions. If you don't know the client is the most helpful way to know what they need and what they're experiencing. If you don't know anything about the client and there's nobody who can help you out, I would strongly encourage you to just know in your mind, okay, who's in the building with me, you know, just start going through that, that preparation list. Who's in the building with me in case this escalates? Um, is there anyone around that we would need to move? Are there any sharps? You know, you can always be preventative. Ask questions though. If you are not familiar with the client, ask questions. Has anyone helped you today? Did you need anything? Social distancing is a great opportunity for us to keep our distance, right? So I'm gonna stay back a little farther because I wanna keep me and you safe. Um, have you been helped today? Is there anything I can do for you? Um, are you feeling okay? Uh, do you want anything that um, I can go get for you in terms of water or are you hungry? You know, ask what needs you can meet. Um, and that is most likely to help a person say, oh, this person's here to help me. Unfortunately, we can't predict human behavior, but we can say, oh, okay, this person is not receptive. Let me give them some space. I'll alert the people in the building that we may have a situation and I need um, a supervisor to come down just to be some support. But 
definitely get into the habit of asking questions, asking what needs are present, asking what needs you can meet. And if that person is not receptive or their behaviors begin to increase in terms of agitation, in terms of frustration, um, they become blameful, they're not receptive to any information or help, um, start to think for yourself, okay, what am I feeling? This feels like it's going to escalate. Let me go and contact someone so that I can have backup. In terms of Jennifer's comment about not taking the client in and um, he was already intoxicated and already upset and then was starting an argument with another uh, consumer, I think that that is a wonderful opportunity to take a step back and say, okay, this client was already agitated. We had substance use, right? So if we go back, identifying risk includes what are the behaviors you're seeing or observing or they're reporting, but then also history and referral. Well, this was a new client. So we weren't really able to uh, meet him and see what was going on, but he was already intoxicated. Okay. And we didn't really know him again. We weren't really in a space to ask him questions about his medication, but based on his behaviors, he is posing a threat to others. That's a big red flag posing a threat, an active threat to others, you go. You contact who you need to to begin managing this crisis. Um, but then also he was intoxicated. So aggression, agitation, and intoxication never end well, um, at least in my experience, both personal and professional. So what I would always encourage is to start formulating that plan. Start formulating that plan. When you've noticed that this is a potential um, crisis situation, because if he were not intoxicated and he was responsive to attempts to bring him down to reasonable, then what we could say is, okay, let's take a walk. We will take a walk with you to help you come. I don't say calm down, but come down. Um, or we will get you what you need. Are you hungry? Um, you seem like maybe you need some medical support. Do you want us to call someone, right? But he was already intoxicated and actually an active threat to someone else. Um, so sometimes rapport can bring someone you've worked with down from that level. But if you don't know them, then chances are it's not a good idea to intervene um, when a person is already agitated um, intoxicated and actively threatening harm or aggressive toward others. When we're talking about assessing the need or assessing um, whether or not we're in a safety or crisis issue, we also have to consider these other factors. So when we talk about history, we're also talking about what is their substance use history? Is it possible that this individual is agitated because they are intoxicated? Um, what are they presenting like? Meaning in the moment, what do they look like? In the moment, do they pose a safety risk? Um, we're also looking at recklessness. Has this person involved themselves in any reckless behavior? So maybe uh, standing in the middle of the street, you know, um, have you observed them to do things that are unlike them, but it's pretty reckless in nature? Have they had a recent hospitalization? Um, are they being aggressive or assaultive? Are they having hallucinations? 
um, but then delusions as well. If, if the individual is experiencing, you know, behaviors that are unsafe, you know, where there's crying, rocking, maybe defensive statements, they're also having hallucinations, they're delusional, they've been assaultive lately, as well as a recent 24 to 72 hour hospitalization discharge, then we're probably heading toward a crisis situation. When we look at assessing the reason that these things are helpful to know is it because it lets us know how close this individual is to becoming a danger to themselves and to other people. It kind of gives us a sense of time, you know, we should call someone right now versus, okay, let's give them a few minutes to call themselves and then we'll see what they need and then maybe we'll have to call someone. You know, those are two different trajectories. Call someone right now. Um, give this person time. It really, really depends on your assessment process. And so all of this is integral to you having a really thorough assessment of whether or not this individual needs you to call for help um, ending in a hospitalization or loss of freedom. The reason for referral is also a part of your assessment process. If you um, are meeting with an individual who was referred to you from a hospital discharge within 24 to 48 hours, that is significant because that individual is in that period of stability that um, can sometimes hinge on, you know, did they go back to their space, whether it's their home, uh, their encampment, whatever it is and their items are touched, or maybe they weren't able to transition from the hospital to their home um, comfortably, or maybe they just felt like they didn't get the support that they needed and they're not totally stable. You know, it, that hospitalization period is so fragile for many of our consumers. So when we talk about the source of referral, it is very, very important for us to start formulating um, in the event of an escalation, what we're going to need. So for example, we have a client who's argumentative, defiant, intoxicated, and they're new, but they were referred to us from um, you know, a hospitalization at discharge. But then also they came in looking pretty disheveled. The discharge was less than 48 hours ago. Um, and the reason for hospitalization was grave uh, disability, um, homicidal ideations. We're probably going to want to approach this individual as a team. We're also probably going to want to put enough space between us and the individual so that they don't feel crowded or overwhelmed. And we may want to talk beforehand about who's going to govern, um, you know, the assessment process and gather all the documentation so that there's one person talking to the client so that you can, can get to know what the needs are. So the source of referral, whether it's a hospital, um, a jail, a probation officer, those give you insight into, you know, the tendencies tied to the individual in terms of their needs. Um, the reason for referral will also give you insight into what the client's expectations are. So one of the things that has triggered many crises has to do with what the client is expected to receive versus what the client is expecting to receive. 
So what I mean by that is if you have a client that comes in and they're expecting assistance with housing, they're expecting assistance um, with funding for new clothing, new shoes, but then also maybe they want um, some type of medication management support and all you offer is vouchers for hotel stays, there's probably going to be some frustration, right? And empathy really, really is a great source of uh, preventative care. <laughs> empathy can let a person know, I, I can't do this, but I can do this. So when we talk about the reason for referral, it's super important for us to understand what the client expected to receive versus what we are able to give. Does that make sense? Um, so presenting problems is also something to consider when we're assessing whether or not um, this is going to end, this particular situation is going to end in a crisis. What did the client or consumer come in presenting with? You know, um, what is the reason for referral? Where did they come from and what are they looking like? So those are three things to keep in mind when you're meeting with the client and saying, okay, well, you came from, um, you know, Keck Hospital Behavioral Health. Did they tell you we were going to give you some sort of housing? Okay, they did. Well, have you been homeless or what is your housing situation? You know, sometimes we need to gather more information, but also taking into consideration what is that client presenting with? Okay, so there's chronic homelessness now. So you were released from a hospital with no direct housing and chronic homelessness is a problem, but you also have the expectation that we're going to give you housing now. Now we have to start looking for alternatives to support this client's needs, their expectations, but then also understanding why they were referred to us and where the referral came from so that we can try and meet their needs within the scope of what we are able to do without triggering a hostile reaction. Does that make sense? I feel like I said a lot. Going to take a break for questions just because this can sometimes be um, a topic that triggers experiences where people have a lot of frustration tied to communication problems between sources of referrals versus their agency and what they do. So are there any questions? So the expectations of agency, presenting problems, reason for referral and source of referral, again, all of this is part of your assessment process. Now, let's go back just a little. So let's say, and we'll take two situations. Let's say a familiar client, he's been with the agency maybe three months, comes in with behaviors that are just kind of like a little unsettling. So he's yelling. Um, he's also got inappropriate laughter. He's rocking back and forth, but his, finch, his fists are clenched. Um, maybe he looks really tense and he's pacing and he's entertaining internal stimuli and having a conversation about everyone refusing to listen to him and refusing to hear him. But then also he's saying, you know what, I don't feel well. I don't feel well. I need help now. I need to see my case manager now. But then you also observe that he came in without uh, his usual backpack that he carries that has his self-soothing items in it. You also know that maybe there was a new medication referral 
um, and he has started those meds in the last week. But then also, he appears to be intoxicated, and you're not sure if he's been reckless or not, but you do know that he uh, just got out of a hospital, um, or excuse me, he was just released from the hospital um, after maybe a 14-day hold, um, and he has a history of regression and assault towards staff, and you see him entertaining the uh, internal stimuli or hallucinations. Then you start to say, okay, he's escalated. We may need to get a team ready. So you call, you know, your supervisor, you say, hey, so-and-so's here. Uh, he looks agitated. He's got a lot of behaviors going on. We know he was just released from the hospital. They started him on a new medication there. He also seems intoxicated. I'm going to clear the lobby. Can you send someone to help me? Um, then you start thinking about what presenting problems he had before the hospitalization. And then you know that initially he was really frustrated because he didn't get housing right away when he came to you. So you're considering all this and you're saying, okay, we may be escalating now to a point of we are in full crisis. You've already called your supervisor, you've cleared the lobby, um, your partner is coming down to support you and you've decided to just kind of move all the things that can be thrown. You moved them, you gave them to the secretary um, or the receptionist, and uh, you let her know to keep people from coming through this way. So now you know that you are the only one in this space. You know that your partner's coming. You also know that the client is between you and the doorway. But then you also know there's an exit to your right. You avoid putting your back against the wall. And maybe you keep your hands visible because you don't know how this client is feeling, right? So you lower your voice tone and you just wait patiently. And when he makes eye contact, hey, how are you today? Is everything okay? What do you need? What can I get for you? Right? Because now what we do is we put ourselves in a position of I'm assessing, but I've started accessing some support but maybe there's a need I can meet that will bring him down. He looks at you and he says, F you, you know, I hate you. You never listen to me. And then your partner comes down and he says, oh, you guys are ganging up on me. You know, now we're past the part of intervening. Let's go ahead and call for some support. At that point, you are now managing the crisis. You have contacted whoever you need, whether it's PMRT, whether it's the SMART team, your partner is making someone aware of what's going down in the lobby. You've motioned for the uh, receptionist to, uh, again, just make sure nobody else comes in here. We're in this space and you are safety proofing the area by just keeping an eye on everything around you as possible. Then he leaves, he busts through the doors and he leaves. You know, you and your partner will then communicate about, okay, well, let's go ahead and just keep a safe distance. Let's make sure that he is transitioning safely through the community. And that way we can let the SMART team or the uh, PMRT team know where we are. Um, we're describing the way we look. We have our badges on us, but we're keeping at a safe distance. You know, you are actively managing the crisis at that point. So that's kind of how you would take these 
behaviors and history, substance use, those things into consideration and then begin to go from assessment to management. I think what's really great about going from assessment to management is you can always begin to manage a crisis and then the client recover, right? The client can always recover. When we talk about managing a crisis, that's also why we, we try and assess as thoroughly as possible. We're not always going to get that long opportunity to assess and prepare and be preventative, right? But in the events that we can, we have to remember that these are relationships. We have to nurture and maintain the relationship. We always want to give our clients the opportunity to just be themselves and then come back into the fold if they leave it, you know? Um, so sometimes calling too early or not calling too late can, can impact the relationship. Um, and so I, I think that it's really important for us to try to manage the relationship, um, but always keeping in mind, is this safe? I always encourage in terms of substance use and medication, if you have a client who is actively using substances, when the client comes into the program, and of course you have programs that are um, harm reduction focused, right? And so what that means is there's some level of substance use expected. If a client is actively using, I strongly encourage wellness plans to be implemented. A wellness plan, um, the way we use it in our agency, is a comprehensive plan that says, when are you well? How can we get you well if you're not? How will we know when you're not well? And what do we do until you become well if you are escalated? Okay. The reason that that is significant is because sometimes we have clients who are actively using and we have to remind them, well, remember when we started working together, we said that when you're actively using, we are not able to support you the same way. So this is how we will support you. Do you remember? You know, and if they're not able to recall that conversation, that's okay because it gives us an opportunity to rework the wellness plan. And the wellness plan is a great opportunity to put things in place that will prevent crises. So for example, you know, Ron, the other day you came in, you were escalated and it seemed like you were intoxicated. So maybe what we can do is when we see that you're intoxicated and you wanna come in, who do you want to work with you and how can we remind you that we're not always going to be comfortable and we may need to give you some space? You know, just conversations around, you know, what do you look like escalated and how can we safely intervene when you are escalated? Um, those are conversations that can be added into the wellness plan. So that way the client eventually becomes able to not just self-regulate, but when they are intoxicated, they are used to your response, if that makes sense. So we've had really great success here creating wellness plans that say red flags, for example. Red flags, uh, if I'm agitated, I miss two sessions and I'm intoxicated, then that lets you know that I am maybe two to three days away from needing a hospitalization. 
Um, okay, so those are your red flags. What are some triggers? Well, I get that way whenever um, my probation officer comes around, or I get that way whenever I feel like my family is not honoring my self-determination, or I get that way whenever I feel like um, my, my marriage is on the rocks, you know. Okay, so these are your triggers. These are some red flags. Let's talk about how we are going to intervene. You know, how do you feel about us saying, okay, let's just take a walk? Okay, so we can take a walk. Well, how do you feel about us calling someone if the walk doesn't work? Okay, we'll call someone next. Well, what if you start to yell at us and get loud? Should we call the PMRT team? Yes. Okay, there we go. So now we have a plan. So what's helpful with the wellness plan is even in the event of you not being present and someone else being able to support your clients, there's a wellness plan that can potentially reduce the need to call any law enforcement, but can also ex expedite the process of meeting that client's need by getting them a, a certain level of support that they've already predetermined. Yeah, so there's actually a few questions that uh, come up. So the um, first question is, um, and it might go back uh, just to the previous examples, but what if uh, some of what you described happens in the field or one-on-one? -on -one? How would you manage that crisis versus an office setting? And then I'll read the other question. If you need me to repeat it, just let me know. Um, some consumers are really quick on their feet and may make a move towards you. And before you know it, they have blocked your exit before your partner arrives. What is the alternative? All righty. So great questions. Um, I will actually answer them separately. And then I think that they go really well together too. So in terms of, let's say that you're in the field and you're meeting a new client in an encampment. One of the things that we have to remember is removing a client from an encampment can be traumatic. Encampments are small communities. And so when you take someone from their community, remember that there may be a trauma response. So let's talk about you visiting an encampment to meet your new client for the first time, right? So we're gonna go all the way back to vehicle safety. Where did you park? You know where you parked, you know that you didn't have anything in the in the back seat, you know that it's well lit, you know that your team knows where you are, you know that um, you're not parked in anyone's driveway, so you're able to just kind of pull off. Um, so that's not on your mind, but you know where your vehicle is, it is in your line of sight. You know, your physical person has nothing hanging off of it. You know, you don't wear a lot of jewelry or, or you don't have anything hanging um, and your shoes are comfortable. So if you need to leave quickly, you can. You've also, on your way through the encampment, identified a quick path out of it. Straight to that car that's in your line of sight. You also know that you don't have many pieces of paper on you. Maybe you folded a couple of authorizations to release and obtain information and you put them in your pocket. Um, and maybe you have a clicker pin. I encourage clicker pins because in the event that someone tries to stab you, it might pop out versus a pin that is um, stable in one place and it can go through your skin. But um, you've got your clicker pen and your folded authorizations to obtain and release information. You've got your badge clipped to you. That way it's not hanging and can't be snatched. Um, and you feel good today. You've had enough water because you know you were going to be in the field. So foundationally, you feel comfortable going into this encampment. You notice that your um, client seems to be 
um, agitated. You know that they're agitated because they're rocking back and forth and maybe they're, um, you know, having a conversation and whatever's going on internally, that conversation is escalating. They're getting louder. Um, you also notice that there's no one else around you guys, but maybe there are um, encampments around you. Um, there are items stacked. And so you're like, okay, well, let me give him some space. I've got my mask on. Um, you know, I, I'm here. I look pleasant. Hey, Joe, how are you doing today? My name is Lucina. I'm here. I'm your new caseworker. He pops up and starts screaming at you. Okay, you know, I'm going to give you some space. Um, can we walk or maybe I'll wait over here near the sidewalk and when you're ready, just come to me, you know, and he gets maybe a little bit more agitated. Okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to come back another day. I'll give you a call and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to uh, leave and I'll check on you in a few hours. Is that okay? You start to go to your car, you notice that he is following you, okay? What I would encourage you to do is, you know, begin to get your keys out of your hand, unlock your car, get into it as safely as possible. I, I don't encourage running unless they start running after you because you running can actually trigger um, an escalation um, and, and you running can also kind of rupture the relationship a little bit. But definitely move quickly, move intentionally, um, and get to your car, get in it. And as you go, remember to remain calm as you drive off. Um, be aware of cars coming in and out of traffic. And I would encourage you to get to a point where you can pull over and call your supervisor. Let them know what's going on. Let them know where you are. That's what I would encourage, um, especially for a client who is quick on their feet and can easily block your way out of that encampment um, or is quick on their feet and they posture you. And now there are other individuals that are kind of coming out and it's getting increasingly unsafe. You know, you definitely want to make sure that you take a clear direction in and out. Keep your vehicle in your line of sight get in quickly and then let your supervisor know what happens um, when you get to a point that you can pull over. So all that for in the field. Um, for the specific example that I gave with regard to the teammates coming down and the um, individual escalating, Again, what you have to do is just be aware of where you are. Be aware of your exits. Make sure there's enough space between you. Make sure, if possible, you have a clear path in either direction to either your vehicle or an exit. Um, if you're in a place where it's kind of windy and you have to intertwine to get there, I strongly encourage have the client meet you. Have them meet you at the entrance and walk with you through to a certain point. Sometimes we are required to see where they live and what it looks like. That's great. Oh, okay, this is where you live. All right, well, let's go for a walk. So now I, I kind of see it. I don't want to invade your space. I really want to respect, um, you know, your living situation. So can we take a walk? You know, you really don't want to find yourself in a position where nobody can see you from the street where nobody can hear you from the street and where you don't know where you are. 
in relation to the street you've parked on. Um, so I wanna make sure I answered the question. Um, just be aware of where you are, um, where you're parked, have a line of sight and be able to exit quickly. In the event that the client is quick on their feet and blocks the exit, I would encourage you to use very calm questioning. What do you need? Okay, are you aware that I'm unable to get out of here? Do you want to be in here? Should we sit down? You know, you really want to keep them engaged as possible um, so that you are able to bring them down at least until they move out of your way. Um, if in the event that you find yourself blocked in and the client is posturing, please be mindful of your back being against the wall. Be mindful of anything that can be thrown um, and be mindful of whether or not you have your phone on you because sometimes you can say, you know what, let me call someone who can help you. And then you call someone who can actually help you. Um, if that makes sense. Questions about that? Okay, so it looks like uh, we did get another uh, comment with some questions here. And it says, so if we want to always remain visible, why should we meet them at their home? Should we meet in a common place like a public building or park? Also, is there ever an instance where we carry something on us for protection like pepper spray or is that too much? One of the reasons from my understanding that we meet consumers in the home is because we have to learn um, how they respond in natural and non-natural settings, right? So a non-natural or unnatural setting would be our office. Um, a natural setting would be their home. For example, telehealth now and safety. Seeing their home, seeing what's going on behind them, hearing what the noises are, or when you visit, smelling what's going on in the home, hearing what's going on, seeing what they contend with can give you a wealth of knowledge in terms of being able to identify cultural factors that can be exacerbating mental and emotional health um, or perpetuating the use of abuse. Um, we also can practice cultural humility by giving them the opportunity to say, this is who I am and this is what I need. And we say, wow, let me honor that, right? So even though we need to remain visible, the reasons we meet them in the home um, really center around client self-determinations, identifying client needs, cultural responsivity to their needs, as well as um, understanding where they're coming from, also understanding how to conceptualize their needs, how to conceptualize their case management needs, how to conceptualize their mental and emotional health needs. So there's a lot of really great reasons to meet clients in their home. We definitely want to remain visible as able. So even meeting a client in the home, maybe you're remaining visible by sitting on their porch, or maybe when you go into the home, you remain visible um, by sharing your location, right? Technology allows us to really be visible in a lot of different ways. Um, so even though we wanna remain visible, we still may need to see them in their natural environment to really understand their needs and to be able to practice in a 
culturally competent way, as well as a trauma-informed way as well. So someone mentioned earlier about it could be safer to be inside depending on the neighborhood. Well, if you feel that way, imagine what it is like to live in that neighborhood, right? So if we're looking at a trauma-informed response, we wouldn't know that if we hadn't met them in the home. So there's a lot of good reasons for meeting people in the home, but we still have to be vigilant and practice safety. Um, in terms of protection, so we, when I was with Department of Mental Health a couple of years ago, we were given these, um, they look almost like phone cases, old school phone cases for the flip phones. They were a button, it was a panic button. And so, some people wore it around their necks and some people wore it on their pockets. Some people kind of um, taped them to their desk or wherever they saw clients. And so in that sense, DMH issued protective items um, were allowed. It really depends on your agency. It depends on their stance and it depends on whether or not it's in alignment with um, DMH's expectations of how you're servicing clients um, and also how they encourage you to remain vigilant and safe. So all of that said to say, I encourage you to talk to your program managers, your supervisors, um, because if you're going into the field and you don't feel safe, that is definitely going to impact how you connect with clients. Okay, so I kind of want to take everybody through a brief exercise. You've probably utilized this or done it um, with clients, but this is just some, I want to go over techniques to help you remain calm in these situations. Um, because even when we don't know it, given the state of traumatization that we are in as a global community, I really, really believe that we are all hypervigilant right now. If you're not, congratulations, and I encourage you to remain non-hypervigilant. But for many of us, over the last year, we've transitioned in and out of hypervigilance and apathy. We've transitioned in and out of worry, anxiety, and exhaustion. We've transitioned in and out of caregiver fatigue, compassion fatigue, vicarious traumatization, burnout, worry about our own health and safety. Many of us are now caregivers. There's so much going on that I really, really believe that we are in a perpetual state of hypervigilance. So I just wanted to try to do like a couple of exercises just so that you become aware of how even in this um, state of rest, you're feeling. So I hope that that's okay. So what I would like is for everyone uh, participating to look around you and find five things that are green. Uh, for me, I should have thought about this because I don't see any green. Uh, the top to a pin cap, my work bag, my post-its, the couch pillows, and the in-session doorknob hanger, okay? Uh, four things that are yellow, for me it's a pillow, it's our cubby boxes, highlighters, and more post-its. Three things that are blue, uh, my laptop screen, our hand sanitizer wipes, 
and our hand sanitizer spray. Two things that are white, printer paper and the printer. One thing that is black, uh, the tape dispenser. So really quickly, a, a kind of brief grounding exercise. The importance of being able to ground ourselves and to make sure that we are okay, given that we are in a perpetual state of hypervigilance and change and uncertainty is so significant when we're talking about assessing a crisis. So one of the things that I'd like to add, because we're going to be focusing um, the second part of this on taking care of yourself and also remaining calm, even though we'll go through it. One of the things that came up last time was being able to assess a crisis using telehealth. So how do you assess a crisis using telehealth? Well, one of the things um, that is different for us with telehealth is we don't get to see the client, feel their energy. We don't get to sense what they're going through. We don't really get that same connection. And for a lot of our clients who are opting for telephone versus virtual, it can be very difficult to assess whether or not um, they're low, moderate, high risk in terms of self-harm, um, suicidal ideation issues, homicidal ideation issues, substance use. So one of the things that I encourage is still being able to utilize this plan um, or at least these aspects of identifying risk, but um, manage it differently when you're using telehealth. So I want to take this opportunity to ask anyone if they had any questions on assessing um, safety and crisis issues through telehealth, whether it's a virtual platform or if it's telephone. So when we're using telehealth to assess risk, we're still looking at behaviors. So again, we are going to talk about their mental status. Uh, for example, how are they feeling? What are their thoughts like? Um, do they seem alert? Do they seem engaged? Do they seem um, like maybe they are not aware of what day it is? Do they seem short and curt, which is not typical for them? You know, how does their voice tone sound? You know, on a virtual platform, how do they look physically? Do we notice anything about their environment? Um, if we're on the telephone, do we hear that they seem to sound like they're um, in a very, very noisy area and we know that they live alone? We know that they don't go out often. Or um, are they talking a lot about feeling anxious or stressed or worried? Are they talking about feeling hopeless? Are they talking about feeling worthless? Are they talking about feeling overwhelmed by COVID and all of the information? You know, what are they talking about? How are they sounding? What is it looking like in their background? But then also, what are they saying about their self? What do they need? Are the individuals that you're talking to reporting, they feel lonely and they need to be around people? Um, are they re reporting that they, they just kind of wish they didn't wake up this morning? Um, are there passive ideation statements such as, oh, I wouldn't mind if I got COVID and died? You know, what are they reporting? So what are they sounding like? What are you observing if you can see them on a virtual platform? But then also what are they saying? What are they reporting?
Also, are they sticking to their medication regimen? Um, are they able to get in touch with their doctors? Have they been unable to complete a telehealth appointment to continue their medication? You know, what is going on that could tip you off about, oh, we may be running into an issue. There might be a problem. Um, substance use, is it current? Is it current in the last 24 hours? Um, I had a client recently who gave up eight years of sobriety. You know, it was just too much. Um, and it got to the point to where we had to make sure that we removed all the guns from the home. Is there a gun in the home? Is there a gun in the facility that they stay in? Is there weapons in the vicinity of their encampment? You know, because of isolation, we know that there's um, an increase in neglect of certain populations. Are they eating? Um, do they talk to you about new things that they've learned to do or have they completely withdrawn from things they used to do? You know, are, are they showing up tattered or, or unkempt during your virtual sessions? If you're talking to them on the phone, do they report feeling hungry or tired often? Uh, and there's no reason for it. Do you feel like this individual is speaking slower than usual or have they stopped attending sessions? You know, reckless behavior. Do you hear them saying that they're doing things that are unusual, such as um, fire setting, you know, and trying to contain the fire? Are they um, increasing their substance use intake because of boredom? You know, um, have they increased in um, high-risk behavior, you know, hospitalization, did they recently go into the hospital? One of the things that is super significant um, that we are learning here in this agency is that a significant amount of our clients who have experienced the COVID virus, um, thankfully, they've all successfully made it out, but we are dealing with a significant trauma issue. So we have people who thought that they had beaten depression and um, they were on maintenance and then all of a sudden they're back in those dark thoughts because they had to be alone with themselves for 14 to 21 days. Um, we have people who have stopped sleeping because they spent 14 to 21 days in their space confined quarantine. Now they don't want to sleep in their bed, but there's nowhere else to sleep. Um, we have individuals who actually for a couple of days were in psychosis and had to be hospitalized. And so we in our agency, and we probably service about 100 clients right now, the amount of clients that we've had, maybe about 31 who were COVID positive and got really sick and have since tested negative and have come out of this transition, um, have increased the required um, attendance. So their sessions have increased weekly. We've made more referrals to psychiatrists amongst that population than we ever had. But then also we are now almost, we're not starting from square one, but we're definitely seeing an increase in depressive episodes since their experience. 
So the hospitalization in this sense, when we're talking about assessing risk and safety, may also be a COVID hospitalization or a hospitalization due to, um, you know, a COVID complication. So when we're assessing through telehealth or on the telephone, hospitalization now goes beyond whether it was a psychiatric hospitalization. And then, of course, you know, do they seem agitated? Have they reported any assaults on others, assaults on themselves? Um, are they aggressive toward family members? Um, and then also, are they having hallucinations? So some of these areas don't change when we're assessing for risk um, and safety issues using telehealth or a telephone conversation. Um, but we still want to keep these in mind because we're not seeing them physically as often. Still, we want to make sure that we take into consideration when we're assessing risk using uh, telehealth or, um, you know, a, a virtual platform and a hybrid model, because some people are doing both. We still want to consider the source of referral. We still want to consider the reason for the referral. We still want to consider presenting problems and still the expectations of the agency, especially now that we're using telehealth. Um, to check in. We still want to make sure that um, we are in alignment with we in terms of like what we're providing is in alignment with the correct expectations of the client. And we still want to gauge for active um, substance use and whether or not the individual is being compliant with their medication. Um, but then also if they've resorted um, to using different substances, what are their behaviors like now? So we definitely still want to take that same um, sense of urgency using telehealth to assess risk and safety issues, um, but it just looks a, a tad different. Um, we also encourage, whether in person or using telehealth, ask about what their week is going to look like. So what are you going to be doing next week? Or do you have any plans for the coming week or the coming holiday? Because we want to get a sense of their forward thinking. Are the individuals we serving, are, that we are serving looking forward to something? What are the protective factors? So when we're assessing risk, we also need to know protective factors. If we're trying to come away from a crisis, Identifying protective factors and then utilizing them is super important and helpful. So what is a protective factor? It is essentially um, something in theory or tangible that helps that individual recognize um, that there's either reason to live, reason to go on, or it motivates the individual to de-escalate. So that would be like a puppy. Maybe they're a caregiver. Maybe um, they're looking forward to some incentive that has been set up. Those are protective factors. So one of the things that is super significant and very, very, very important when we are talking about um, preventing a crisis or intervening in a crisis or responding um, subsequent to a crisis, we always focus on taking care of yourself, especially now. One of the things that you can do to take care of yourself in the moment is take a deep breath. Notice your surroundings. Take a physical step back. 
The physical step back is super helpful because it gives you an opportunity to put distance between you and an escalating individual. So when you take a physical step back, it's very subtle and it's literally something that you can do after you say like, you know what, I'm gonna give you a little space. I'm just gonna take a step back, right? So you physically take a step back, um, listen to your instinct, right? Your intuition, um, we use intuition and instinct interchangeable depending on your school of thought. It is not interchangeable, but for this um, presentation, we say listen to your instinct slash intuition. If it is telling you to seek assistance, seek assistance. Um, if it is telling you to exit the environment, exit the environment. Something that's really, really helpful is be open to remaining silent. A good way to take care of yourself is to identify that you do not always have to have the answers. You are able to just sit and, and hold space and be present um, because that can help you take care of you as well. Also, take care of you includes asking for assistance. Ask for help. Tell someone you don't feel comfortable. Swap out and then make sure that you are physically in a space where proximity is not something that has you pinned against the wall. Questions so far or feedback? Yeah, actually a, a couple questions popped up. Um, one is, can, can you explain what you mean by swap out? And is that asking for help or letting a teammate become involved? That's a separate second question. Okay. So swapping out means I don't have to be here to support you. Let me find someone else. Or, you know what, I kind of feel like I am not as helpful to you as I need to be. Let me find someone who can be. So swap out literally means replace yourself with someone else. Um, and then asking for assistance Actually, you can ask for a teammate to come and help you. You can ask for your supervisor to come and help you. You can say to your supervisor, I do not feel comfortable. Please come and support me. The reason that the ask for assistance and swap out are separated is because you can ask for assistance and not leave. You can say, hey, Terry, you know, uh, Randall's down here. He's got a few questions and I really don't feel like I'm supporting him. Can you come down and assist us? This would be a really, really, really great opportunity to develop a uh, word with your team that says, okay, there's a problem. A lot of people have codes that they uh, have on the back of their ID badges. Um, depending on your agency, you may not have that color coordinated safety process. Um, but then sometimes it could escalate a client as well. You know, imagine if you were feeling overwhelmed, anxious, stressed out, uncertain, hypervigilant, and then you hear cold green in the lobby. Oh, I'm in the lobby. Oh, is that me? You know, like you go into a state of fight, flight, or freeze. And when we've already assessed that a person is in crisis, we don't want to push them over the edge, right? So you can ask for assistance without calling for codes or colors. Um, and it's a great opportunity to have a safe word, but you don't necessarily have to leave or, 
or replace yourself. So that's why asking for assistance and swap out are separate. Sometimes our very presence is triggering the client and we need to replace ourselves. Um, so taking care of you and being aware of what that client is bringing up in you is also super important and super helpful. And then there's the team approach. So whenever we say take care of yourself, and the, the great thing is we're actually going to go back to um, wellness tomorrow in terms of taking care of yourself and making sure that you foundationally are okay. Because if you are internally in crisis, helping someone come out of a crisis may actually be triggering for you and you may trigger them. So we will go more into taking care of yourself tomorrow. So I just wanted to kind of point that out. A team approach. If you're going to use a team approach when you are managing a crisis, it is so important to share who is the lead, right? Who is the lead? Who is the person that is going to be the point of contact to the client? Then who is making the call in the event of violence breaking out? That is so important. But then also, who will be the second if a tag out or a swap out is needed? The reason that this is super important is because let's say that um, myself and two associates, registered associates, are trying to de-escalate a situation. Well, I'm licensed. So the assumption is that I am able to make the kind of calls that are going to prioritize this client's safety, our safety, and the client's mental and emotional wellness. So it is probably effective for me to take the lead. I will also delegate who's making the call. You know, Lori, you make the call if he becomes violent. You know, Ezekiel, I'm going to call on you if he becomes violent and we need to swap out. Not only communicating these three things is it significant in the sense of organized chaos, but it is super significant in the event that, you know, more people come on the scene. It can become overwhelming for you as well as the client. Additionally, it can make the debriefing, the follow-up, and the documentation way easier. Then it also creates a systemic communicative approach to meeting this client's needs. If I say that I'm the one who is going to work with the client and support them and Ezekiel is going to be the backup and Lori's just watching to be able to make the call, then I can say, okay, well, it was my call to do A, B, and C. Or I can start just delegating to people because I know everyone's role. So the team approach is a great way to just support clients. It's a great way to support yourself and to feel like not all the pressure is on you, but it's also a really, really great way to have an organized approach to the chaos that may ensue when you have a crisis on your hands. And then it also allows for accountability and then support if something happens like that client gets injured, you get injured, or there's a fatality. Um, the reason that that is a, a great system to have in place in the event of you know things going really awry is because you have people who can back up the experience that you had that made you make the decisions that you made. I definitely encourage team approaches where necessary. 
And actually in the illness and injury prevention plan that um, the, the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health puts out, there are designated safety officers and there's guidelines on supporting people through situations like this. So it's really, really great to, if you have the opportunity, bring it up at a safety meeting or a staff meeting um, to kind of go through that plan. And it's actually something that they require you to say that you've reviewed, um, I believe either annually or when you start, but the, the great thing is it's available to you, as well as the revision of policies. Like it's a really great tool um, to kind of identify who your resources are in terms of a team approach, team decision-making, safety officers when it comes to crises. Safety proofing. So what we will actually do is go through safety proofing and then tomorrow the focus will be on taking care of yourself, de-escalation, both nonverbal and de-escalation, verbal, uh, those tools and techniques. But then I'm also excited to give out some resources in terms of the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health crisis services. So there's kind of been like a, a revising of supports and things that um, you as staff members can give to your families um, or even if you are in the middle of a crisis yourself, things that you can access. So when we talk about Safety proofing, we're talking about first safety proof your physical person. Make sure that there is nothing on you that can become a weapon that will injure you. So what do I mean? A uh, cell phone can be thrown at you. A uh, lanyard can be snatched. Necklaces can be snatched. Um, that's a really great reason why you want to keep your physical distance because if someone is reaching out at you, chances are that you'll have an opportunity to see it and adjust. For clients who are quick on their feet, I strongly encourage you to never have anything on you that can be snatched or grabbed. Um, also make sure that your shoes are comfortable because sometimes you can um, trip up. Make sure that you are physically comfortable in your clothing and that you're alert and you feel well. So when you safety proof, we're looking at your physical person Proximity, we're looking at the distance between you and the individual or the distance between you and anything that can be moved, thrown, um, launched. So definitely be aware of your surroundings. When we say to safety proof the proximity, we're also talking about removing sharp objects. If you are in the field and you want to safety proof, um, Definitely make sure that you have nothing, again, that can be pulled, snatched, grabbed onto if you're running, um, and then also nothing sharp on you. If you are talking to your team about protection in the field, such as mace or pepper spray, make sure that it doesn't leave your person um, because then it becomes a weapon against you. Um, if you are in the office or a satellite setting, where you have a desk, uh, maybe a staplers on the desk or scissors or um, very well sharpened pencils or pens, you know, in a crisis or an escalating situation, I strongly encourage you to remove those items. Um, location, 
you can't really safety proof your location in the sense of, you know, telling everybody to go into their home. But what you can do is you can minimize the items on you. You can make sure that um, all of the documentation that is um, privacy or confidentiality related is locked away. You can make sure that there is nothing in the um, eye view, if I'm looking through your uh, windows, that can be taken or snatched off the seats. You can put all those things in the trunk. But then also you can make sure that your team knows where you are, that you have a line of sight to your vehicle or even a line of sight to your partner. You can make sure that you know your way around whatever vicinity you are in. Um, and you can make sure that you have a full tank of gas, that your car is registered, you're not parking in spaces that may get you towed. Um, so that's kind of safety proofing is being aware of those things. Um, some key takeaways is to A, make sure that you are thoroughly assessing a crisis before you decide to manage it because there may be a point in time where you're able to bring the client down from being escalated and begin the de-escalation process. But then also it can more thoroughly, a more thorough assessment can help you figure out what next steps are and make managing the crisis um, more effective. And it can also give you the opportunity subsequent to a crisis to identify how to reduce the occurrence of crises for that particular client. Okay, so here's what's really great. A couple of tools, and I, I know we're leaving some things out today, but I promise it will be covered tomorrow. Um, it's really, really important to know how you're feeling. It's really, really important to know how you slept, if you're hungry, if you're exhausted. It's really important to know if you're apathetic. It's really, really important to know um, what your thoughts are like, what state of mind you're in. It's extremely important to know where you're at emotionally before you transition into managing or assessing a crisis. Your thought process will impact the outcome of that particular situation. That is why we will spend a significant amount of time on um, recognizing what's going on in you, how you're feeling, checking on you, taking care of you during a crisis tomorrow, and then we will go into de-escalation techniques, both verbal and nonverbal. We'll do a brief review when we start, and then we'll go right into yes. it. So one of the great things about telehealth is it allows us to meet our clients wherever they are, literally. Um, the challenge, though, is we're missing that person-to-person -person interaction that allows us to know, okay, this client isn't congruent, meaning what they're saying is not matching up with what I'm seeing, right? So what it does give us the opportunity, though, is to see if we're virtual and we can see their background. It gives us an opportunity to say, oh, okay, where is it that they sleep? Or, oh, are you in your room? Or, oh, okay, I see that you're eating dinner. Who cooked? Oh, I didn't know you live with your grandmother. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. It gives us an opportunity to gauge what's going on with them by observing what's going on in their background. Um, oh, I didn't know that you had a cat. Or, oh, that I didn't know that you had a dog. How long have you had them? Right? Mm -hmm. So telehealth gives you the opportunity to learn other aspects about your client and start conceptualizing it because now that pet 
or that grandmother may become a protective factor. Um, or if we notice, you know, um, it's really cluttered and, they, and they've been talking about depression or anxiety lately. And like I had a client once, we were doing telehealth and I noticed her entire closet looked like all the clothes were on the floor and the closet threw up, like the doors were gone. And I said, is everything okay? Cause I can see your closet, are you remodeling? Um, and it transitioned us into a conversation where she was actually planning to engage in non-suicidal self-injurious behavior after our call. Um, and so for me, it was like, okay, well, I'm glad I got to kind of see a piece of your environment. You know, do you mind if you give me a tour? So now we get the opportunity to see all those things that are in their environment, right? Um, or even little kids. So during telehealth has become very difficult with our Tay and younger kids. And so I'm like, oh, show me where your parents eat dinner. Who cooks? Like, you know, give me a tour. And it's a great opportunity to really connect and learn more. But what we're looking for when we're assessing risk, maybe we're looking for um, broken windows. Maybe we're looking for um, hoarding tendencies. Maybe we're looking for um, a lot of um, sharps left out. And we know that this is a person who has self-harming tendencies. Or maybe we're listening for... Um, police cars or ambulances or fighting in the background. Um, maybe we are listening for children in the area so that we know, oh, okay, um, maybe there's opportunities to connect with other families. You know, telehealth gives us an opportunity to see what in the background we can utilize as um, a strength or a treatment source. Um, but then it also tells us maybe the lights aren't on today. So why, well, oh, do you want to turn on a light? I can't really see you. Well, I couldn't pay my electricity this month, so um, it's a little dark. Oh, do you need some resources? All right, so it, it really gives us an opportunity to gauge um, what these clients' needs are versus what we've just kind of started with and kept going. So, yeah. Um, well, while people are formulating their questions, one of the things that has come up for us recently has been um, how to manage suicidal ideations while uh, providing telehealth, right? So one of the great things is you can still assess for a plan, you can still assess for lethality, you can still assess for um, is path warm, so recklessness, um, attempts, gesturing, you can still assess for the client's participation in those areas. But now what we're doing is we're utilizing telehealth um, in a way to connect with the client as we would in person. So, okay, well, what can I support you with right now? Or is there anyone in the house that I can talk to that we can come up with a wellness plan right now? You know, we still want to engage those same interventions, but what's really great is it gives us an opportunity to take their environment into their consideration, into consideration as well. Um, one of the questions that I see is in regards to environment where you know their environment is poor and the client denies help, what could case managers do to further support client? This is a beautiful question. Thank you for asking it. One of the things that I encourage is if they're denying it, then 
you can say, oh, I'm sorry. I just thought when I saw, you know, the broken window in the back and you said that you hadn't gotten your electricity uh, covered this month, I thought that those were just two areas that I could support you in, you know. So you literally label your observation and you say, well, this is what I thought, but I apologize if I was incorrect. You know, because now you have, and this is the beauty of observing that natural environment. Now you have concrete information that can, you can use to facilitate a discussion around uh, needs. And if they deny help, then you can continue to just check in about it. Um, and, and telehealth will allow you to check in about it regularly without telling the client you're checking in because now you can see their background. Thank you for that question. Oh, that's what I also just wanted to rename some policies again. The policy specific to transportation of consumers and their families is um, labeled 304.04 .04, and as well as the policy number 309.01 is the provision of offsite mental health services tied to conduct and storage of information and guidelines on that as well. Well, I think that is all I have for today. Wonderful.